Mark chapter 14, verse 53-65 They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guard and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, hand, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked, Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all commanded him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him and struck him with their fists and said prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. The word of God. Okay. Thanks, Harry. One of the things that the Bible teaches that nice people and I'll say religious people have a hard time with, and I think that that in each of us there's something about nice and re, uh, religious that, you know, I mean, we all have some aspect of that, I think. Not always bad. But we have a hard time believing that we are really enemies with God or that we ever were enemies with God and that God had to do something drastic to make things right because basically we're nice people, right? And so uh, to rediscover the living color realities of the cross is... Uh, is difficult for us. And in when a tendency that goes along with being a nice religious person is that you do things that every once in a while, deep down inside, you accuse God of not being good to you because you have behaved well and he has not rewarded you. Have you ever thought that in any way? This is a place to be honest, folks. Yeah. So accusing God is part of that enmity that we, we feel and uh, he's big enough to take it. He's heard it (laughs) before. Radical forms of that have uh, come up through the centuries, and uh, one that paints a picture, Elie Weissel, who died recently, was uh, in his 90s when he died. He went through the Holocaust. He was the only member of his family to survive the Holocaust, Jewish in, in Germany. At Auschwitz, he tells the story one night of three rabbis who were in a corner and uh, they wanted to put God on trial. Now you have to remember why they would want to put God on trial. They, they too have watched their families die, watched their people die, watched the suffering all around them. So the charge they brought against God was that he was uh, in, really responsible for the suffering of the Jewish people. And through the trial, and Weissel witnessed all of this, through the trial, uh, they found God, interestingly, they found him not guilty of being responsible for suffering, but they found him shayav, which is a Hebrew word meaning he owes us something. 
So we just think Jesus paid it all, right? And their verdict was, and I want you to understand, if you had lost all of your family members the way they did, would you not be tempted at least to think he owes us something? We are his people. So uh, there's that. Accusing God, putting God on trial. We have a long history of putting God on trial. In, 19, or in 2007, there was a state legislature in the state of Nebraska who was uh, agnostic at best, and he decided to file a lawsuit against God on behalf of his constituency. <laughs> this gets a little ridiculous, but... Um, and uh, the idea was that God was uh, using terrorist threats, which you can find in writing in here, against his people, and that he was also responsible for natural, quote, disasters or acts of God. God never gets credit for the good stuff. <laughs> it's always, if it's an act of God, it's got to be, you know, an earthquake or a hurricane or something, and, uh, and then death and disease, and so he filed a lawsuit in court. It was thrown out of court because no one could give an accurate address for where God lived. They could not serve him the summons. That's, I'm telling you the truth. You can look this stuff up. So, uh, but within this book itself, you'll find people of God having accusations against God, including uh, Job would be one, and including the psalmist. And one of those psalms, Jesus himself quotes on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, it's, so there's permission to, to accuse God given here. But um, the, we're going to look today at something that is, Mark is slowing down his pace and he's getting us to see the minute by minute countdown to the cross. And we're just hours before and uh, the leaders are awakened at late at night, maybe, or it's late at night, they scramble together because they finally have the opportunity to get Jesus. And they, you know, maybe they're called out of their homes or sleep, whatever, but they come because it's really important. This is the opportunity they've been looking for. And Jesus is there. And he is on trial, but we have to ask the question who is really on trial? Okay? And then we'll have to ask that question of our own hearts because we too are on trial. So here's our, our outline. Who, who is on trial? We'll look at verses 50 to 54. And then uh, we'll look at Jesus and how he does on the witness stand or in that trial process as a defendant. And then we'll do something called cross-examination, which is a double entendre. If you don't know what I'm saying there, there's a cross behind me. So you got it. It's, my, it's a religious pun at best, but, or at worst. Okay, so... Um, let's get into, I want to go back uh, before the passage that was read for us, which, which Harry read, and it says in verse 50, then everyone deserted him and fled. So uh, one of the tendencies that we have as nice religious people is to think that if we were there, it would have been different, right? That I wouldn't have fled. But just realize that no one stayed with Jesus. <laughs> no one. And isn't there a little bit of pride? A little, and that's what religious, religion tends to do to us. Isn't there a little bit of pride in us that would say, I would, oh, I would not have let him down? In fact, that's exactly what Peter has said. I'll be the one, Lord, that doesn't let you down. And yet they all desert him. So be careful 
what you uh, claim for yourself. They all flee. And then a young man, this is, this is really an important verse in Mark's gospel, uh, for kind of a, a quirky little reason, but it says a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him. He's been seized by the guards, and then he fled naked. Uh, so they grabbed onto him, onto this linen garment, the, the guards did, and they held onto the garment, but he fled naked. Okay, so that's kind of weird, isn't it? It's the only place we find that little nugget in all of the Gospels. So who do you think that young man might be? Any thoughts? It's Mark. It's Mark. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Um, at least that's the tradition that has been there for uh, back, almost back to the beginning, and there's no reason to doubt it. Why else would it be in there? Why would he stick that little thing in there? One of the, uh, well, Patty and I, one of the directors that we love to watch movies of is Alfred Hitchcock, and if you know anything about Alfred Hitchcock movies is that he tends to put himself somewhere in the movie, and you have to watch for him. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? And it's kind of fun to find him. He'll be the the guy that's getting on the bus behind the, the main characters or walking down the sidewalk or that sort of thing. So here's Mark's little signature, and it's more than a little signature because he's saying, I, too, fled. It's his way of owning up. I, too, fled. And whenever the Bible talks about nakedness, it does so usually, usually, not always, because in the beginning it was a sign of innocence, but from that point on, it usually means something to do with shame. If you are naked, you, there's a shame attached to that, and Mark is shamed. And, you know, you can imagine that, fleeing. You can imagine as he was running away totally naked where he was, might be headed and how you would feel, and i got to get some cover somewhere and just trying to hide and what that might mean spiritually as he has fled the one who is a source of life, has been a source of life to him, and the shame that's felt in that way. So there's a lot going on right there in that little verse about a young man wearing nothing who flees. And then the other characters we run into here are the, we're going to get to more, but I'll just mention them now. The high priest, who is, whose name is Caiaphas, and all of the chief priests and the elders, and those were all members of what the group called the Sadducees that had their kind of, they were the, sort of the elite, wealthy uh, landowners in and around uh, Jerusalem, and they had control of the temple. And then you also have the teachers of the law who tend to be Pharisees, more middle class, and they come together and they form a group called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin consisted of 70 men who were the powers that be, at least in the Jewish community, under the Roman rule in Jerusalem. So we have that group. And they're going to be on trial. And then finally we have Peter. In verse 54, Peter followed him, that is Jesus, at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, which is where, just outside of where the, the trial was. And there he sat with the guards, and he warmed himself at the fire. And just, there's a lot we could say about Peter, but we won't go into too much of it. But remember that just before this passage, Peter has said, Lord, everyone else might flee you, but not me. So he's the one who said, I'm the one you can, I'm the rock. Peter means rock, literally. It's kind of ironic, isn't it? 
that it means rock because he's kind of flaky sometimes. And um, But he made that statement right before this passage and right as this passage ends, we aren't going to have time to go there today, but we have Peter basically falling apart where he breaks down and weeps because three times he has denied that he even knows Jesus. And so here we have, this is the figure of Jesus. This is a, a, a painting from the 19th century. Here's Peter. Here's the rooster that crows. And Peter feels shame. Now, I, I, I want to bring this up because both Peter and Mark uh, feel shame. And we know what shame feels like. We all do. And uh, they were close buddies. So here's the, the tradition says that Mark got his gospel basically from Peter, that, that they were very, very close, uh, and th- that, that's where Mark got his information from, was Peter. And both of them experienced pain, and the fact that, th- that both of these stories are included in here, what does that tell you about the one who's relaying and the one who's writing down the story, and they both expose themselves as you know, naked, basically, or in places of great shame? What does that tell you about it tells you that there must be more to the story that's going to happen or that something must happen that's really, really huge to get them off of that place of shame. And here's, here's a word for us is that shame is never the last word unless you allow it to be in, our, in your lives. It's not God's last word to you. No, it's, it's, it, you, you can get through it. You can, you can look back on it. And so they're looking back on a time where they felt great shame. Now, who is Mark writing to? Mark is writing to Christians who are in Rome in the first century, probably in the year 60 to 65, where Nero is persecuting Christians, many of whom are tempted, at least, to walk away, to flee from Jesus, to desert Jesus, just like Peter and Mark had. And Peter and Mark can say, we were there too, and it's okay. You may feel shame from that, but Jesus is bigger than your shame. It's really good stuff, folks. So there's our characters. They they don't stand up under the trial, but at least for Peter and Mark, uh, there's there's great hope. Okay, so let's get to the the trial itself and uh, see how Jesus does under pressure as he is confronted by his accusers. Verse 55, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, so this is the 70 now, were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Remember in Mark's gospel, it was in chapter 2 where the leaders in Jerusalem began to plot to kill Jesus. That was three years earlier. And... um, They had struggled to find the time and the place. Now they've got the time and the place, but they can't seem to come up with the evidence. Whatever else you might say about these men, they are wanting to follow the law. Not the spirit of the law, but the law. Okay, And they're looking for evidence to kill him, and they can't seem to find any. In Jewish law, you have to have two witnesses, at least, who agree on something, and they can't seem to find the two witnesses. Okay? So um, they go on. They, They try another tack here. Verse 57, Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. And they say, We heard him say, I will destroy this man made temple, and in three days will build another, not made by man. So that's what they say Jesus said. 
And if you remember in John's gospel, Jesus did say something kind of like that, but not exactly like that. He said, if this temple, he's there in Jerusalem, he's looking at the temple, and he says, if this temple is destroyed, I will rebuild it in three days. So he didn't say he was going to destroy the temple. They're misquoting him. Uh, but they did say that if it were destroyed. And then John adds these words that bring meaning to the text, and that is that the temple that Jesus was really talking about was not the temple, but his body, his physical body. If his physical body is destroyed, it will be raised up in three days. But anyway, they, they bring the charges about the temple, that somehow he's a terrorist who's going to blow up the temple, and... Uh, that charge doesn't stick either because people don't agree. There's not two witnesses. So at this point in the trial, it's getting very frustrating. And I'm going to, I'll just bring this down here. And here's how it would look. I want you to get a picture of this. That there would be a semicircle of, of the 70 kind of surrounding Jesus and that he would be sitting here as the defendant so there's no lawyers, per se. You don't have an advocate. That's not their system. But then you'd have a witness. There'd be another chair here, and then the witnesses would come up and testify. So this has happened now. Jesus is sitting here. And how much has he said so far? Nothing. Nothing. Remember the Isaiah passage that was read for us, or we read earlier, that he kept silent. So he didn't say anything before his accusers. And... The high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, is getting frustrated. Maybe everyone's getting frustrated. So he stands up, and he approaches Jesus, and um, he says to Jesus, uh, let me read for you. Then the high priest stood up, verse 50 or 60, uh, before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. So this is, you can tell, this, Caiaphas is getting a little perturbed, right? And again, the high priest asked him. So here's, here's the climactic moment, and you've got the defendant on the stand. He's been approached by the, the main guy. And whatever happens now, I mean, literally determines forever for everybody. I mean, this is kind of, I mean, I hate to put too much on this, but this is really the moment in the trial. And everyone maybe is leaning forward, wondering if Jesus will respond. And here's the question. Are you the Christ or the Messiah? Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And it's, it, what is that? Is that a, that's a yes or no, right? Either you are or you aren't. Give us your answer. And at this point, Jesus, knowing full well, I think, what it meant, says, I am. I am. Which has Old Testament overtones. And then he says, And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus had always been, I think, Mark more than any of the other gospel writers. I've tried to give you Mark's view here as much as I can. He he paints Jesus as somebody who doesn't want to reveal 
the fullness of who he is. And the reason he doesn't want to say, I am the Messiah, he hasn't to this point in his gospel. This is the first time he said it out loud. He allowed Peter to say it back in chapter 8. But this is the first time where he says, I am the Messiah. The reason he didn't is because he didn't want to give in to their view of what a Messiah was, which was uh, Israel first, make Israel great again. This is not new stuff, folks. That we're gonna uh, we're gonna do a political military thing that gets rid of Rome, and we will be Israel again. That's it, and that is not why Jesus came. That is not it at all. So he did not say, I am the Messiah, simply because, I mean, this is the best answer that we can give, because he did not want people misinterpreting what it meant to be Messiah. And whoever heard of a Messiah dying on a cross? No one had ever heard of that. So that wasn't even in their realm of possibilities. But what he says here is pretty profound. He, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, and if you have your Bible, you know that Son of Man is always capitalized. It is not a description, it is a title. It is a title out of Daniel chapter 7, which means basically Messiah. So it's his way of saying, I'm the Messiah. And here's what, here's what else he says. Seated at the right hand of God. That means he has all the power and authority of God. And not just seated, but coming coming. And you know what he's saying here? He's on trial, but he's saying, I am the judge of everything, including you. And to quote Arnold Schwarzenegger, (laughs) I'll be back, right? Okay. Yeah, they don't like it. So they, uh, the chief priest tears his clothes. I won't, I won't try to do that for you. <laughs> he tears his clothes, and uh, they, he says, what, what can we do here? They, he gets charged with blasphemy. So blasphemy, we hear that you know, today, especially in Muslim countries, where somebody would get accused of blasphemy. And it's, it, it really is similar to that, in that God's name or honor is at stake. And they see Jesus as somebody who is besmirching God's name and God's honor. And so he's charged with blasphemy. Now in the Old Testament, in God's word, in Leviticus, it says that anyone who is guilty of blasphemy shall be killed by stoning. Picking up rocks and throwing enough rocks until until they die. However, back to reality in first century Israel, They are under Rome, and Rome does not allow any of their subject nations to do capital punishment. Therefore, instead of having bloody rocks on our wall, we have a cross, which is the implement of death to first century in the Roman Empire. Does that make sense? And so next week we'll see how it's Pilate, the Roman governor, whom they turn Jesus over to, who, that, that's the next conversation, but uh, here it goes. Okay, so little cross-examination, and then we're going to have communion. Uh, back to the three rabbis. As they were uh, pronouncing this judgment upon God, if you remember what that judgment was, it was that uh, God owes us something. And you can, I want you to just feel what they would feel as a, as a 
a Jewish rabbi watching your people die and having the promises that God has made to them as a people, that he would be their God and they would be his people and there would be a faithful thing there and watching everybody die and just experiencing that. And yeah, it makes sense that you would say God owes us something or God doesn't care about the suffering of his people or something like that. So here's the, here's the question for them and it's really the question for a lot of us. You've just seen Jesus be, uh, okay, look, I didn't, we didn't read the last part, but um, he's under a death sentence. He's going to die, but before that he is spit upon and he is mocked and he is beaten. That's in the passage that we have here. They want to get their licks in before they turn him over to. So, okay, how much does God have to pay? If, if God owes us something, how much does God have to pay? That's, that's a good question. Think of, think of your own life. I mean, just take it out of three rabbis. That, you know, that was a long time ago. And, but just your own life. Those of us who get those religious impulses that say, I've been so good and God must not pay attention to my good behavior. Wake up, God, I'm good. Where are you? You know. Uh, it's not fair. You know, and, and all of those things. And wh- at what point has God paid enough? Of what he owes you. I mean, just try to answer it. So, uh, for some reason, and this is the mystery, folks, that I will never understand in this, I don't know, ever, ever, but God chose, rather than choosing to rescue his people, he chose to identify with them, with their pain. No. And, and uh, d- d- I mean, just mystery. But instead of rescuing us from our pain, he oftentimes, oftentimes, I'm not going to say always, he chooses instead to identify with us in our pain. Okay, I'm going to just close by reading this from John Stott, who uh, died maybe five years ago. I actually had the uh, privilege of... <coughs> having him uh, teach a class that I was there and it was wonderful. He was British and uh, I won't say anything else except I'll read this. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one that Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? I have entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured, figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. This is where you have to make your choice, folks. (laughs) This is where you have to make your choice. 
That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. Our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. There is still a question mark against human suffering. The three rabbis have a point, is what he's saying. There's still that question mark. We can ask well, the why questions. But over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the mark that symbolizes God suffering for us. Let's pray. Lord, there's a mystery here that is way bigger than we are. It's a mystery that our minds certainly can't wrap around, and it's a mystery that our hearts are just drawn to or maybe repulsed by, but it's just a mystery. But for those of us, us with faith, we embrace it. We embrace the mystery of your dying for us. And we marvel at it, and we wonder what could have caused you to do such a thing for us. And it gets our minds off of our pain that is very real to us. And we lift our pain up to you now, Lord. Just go ahead and pray, whatever your anxieties are, whatever your pain is, whatever your shame is, go ahead and lift that up to the God who came into our pain in this world, into the shame hanging naked on a cross. And Lord, in all of this, there's some connection between us and you that happens as we come to you in that faith. And so we come to you now at this table where we celebrate your death and your living promises that are with us forever. In Jesus' name, amen.